Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to talk about another side of capitalism after last week. Can we innovate our way out of the mess we're in? And if so, who is going to pay for it? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Today we have with us Bill Janeway, economist, venture capitalist, and he's the author of a new edition of his classic book, Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, which covers a lot of the themes we're going to be talking about today. We've got Diane Coyle, Professor of Public Policy, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, so we're pretty well covered here, not including me in this. We're going to start with the Green New Deal, because that's a way into some of the big questions about innovation, about the role of the state, and about the kind of capitalism that we have. So, Bill, maybe we'll come on to the historical comparisons in a bit, because there is a question as to what it means to call something a new deal, given we've only had one, so we've got one to go on. But the basic idea behind the Green New Deal is that to get the step change we need in an innovation economy faced with an existential challenge, you need massive state investment. Do you think it's being pitched right? Is it being sold right? Well, getting response to climate change on the agenda in and of itself is a positive contribution. Second, I think of the Green New Deal as a brand, not a plan. And the real challenge now is to get a much broader, deeper public sense of enabling crisis, of making this a legitimate political mission, such as the Cold War was, such as certainly World War II was, and such as when Franklin Roosevelt became president and there were 15 million unemployed out of a workforce of probably about 60 million, but a lot of those people were farmers who were never counted as unemployed when they lost their farms, and the banks were all closed. You didn't have to argue about whether there was a crisis. Because in a way, that's one of the themes of your book, which is the drivers of innovation and the kind of investment that you need for this sort of innovation. It's not direct. It's not targeted at the thing itself. It's often in the pursuit of something that's recognized as a legitimate goal in its own right. And then you get the transformation as a knock-on effect. Right. And the, the transformational episodes, and particularly with respect to where state investment at multiple levels is required, needs the state to be liberated from the shackles of prospective cost-benefit analysis. And that's where the legitimizing mission comes in. Historically, there have been two, national development, as in uh, Japan and Korea and China, and national security, with the potential in the right hands and at the right moment for the language of war to spill over into, for example, Nixon's war on cancer, which legitimize enormous investment in the NIH and the, and the basis for the biotechnology revolution. Of course, and this is a challenge for thinking about how to present the Green New Deal, the language of war has been debased 
from Vietnam through Iraq too, by way of the war on drugs. So it's not available for political entrepreneurs. And that's why I think there's a creative sense in behind the notion of invoking the Green New Deal, but as a brand. Because you could almost say with climate, we're caught in a bind here, which is you make it existential and it's overwhelming. You make it cost benefit and it's it's not big enough. And it's finding that space, which yeah. I, don't, I don't know what you think, but like, does the Green New Deal sit in the right space somewhere between we're doomed and this is just kind of cost-benefit business as usual. I think it probably does. And of course, it speaks to the US context and not elsewhere. But another way of thinking about it would be as an industrial strategy. And here we've had a debate about reviving the concept of strategic management of the economy and having the state intervene by pointing out what the big challenges are so that innovation gets aligned in a certain direction and you get this positive spillovers and the creation of skills and capabilities that then become self-fulfilling and stimulate the economy that way but also address the challenge. So for other countries it would be something different. It might be old age social care. It might for us not be green technologies on the whole because we're not at the frontier in all of those in the way that the US and China are. But that's the kind of intervention that I would describe it as. The one thing that is missing is a recognition that we don't have the technologies we need. Particularly, we don't have the energy storage technologies that could allow the grid anywhere in the world, including in China, to be supplied by 50% or more of on-again, off-again, intermittent energy sources like solar and wind. So there's a DARPA side of this project that is legitimate investment in projects at the frontier, most of which will fail. And again, you need the mission that will allow the state players not to be vilified when they experiment like venture capitalists, but with much larger scale and much longer term time horizon to get the technology base for the Green New Deal being anything other than a slogan. Yeah, I think the politics of it are interesting in several respects, one of which I'll come back to, which picks up on something you've just said, um, Bill. I think on the one hand, if you look at it in terms of where the Democratic Party has been before on green issues, it's basically trying to leave that behind. In particular, it's trying to leave the carbon tax agenda behind. And I think in partly it's trying to do that because you can see what happens if you like the class conflict issues that come out of that. And we can see that in terms of what's gone on in France with the diesel tax and the uh, gilets jaunes. And it's trying to move it and say, actually, we're going to go about financing this in a completely different way that doesn't involve carbon taxes. We're not going to open ourselves to the the critique that it's middle class people basically imposing costs on poorer people than themselves. And I think you can also see in terms of the involvement of the Sunrise Movement, the attempt to make it a generational issue, which hasn't previously been so explicit, at least in the way in which the people most concerned about the environment, and climate change and the Democratic Party have gone about things. Yet at the same time, they're making it very partisan, because when you talk about the Green New Deal, you're appealing to something that's historically a Democrat agenda, and which invokes lots of resistance from people who don't want to turn America into what they think of as a social democratic society with a social democratic, very interventionist What's what's interesting is that more than 3,000 American economists have signed a petition calling for a carbon tax to be redistributed as a lump sum to all Americans. Mm -hmm. And And many of those come from the right of politics. 
And and it, you've always had the alternative of a carbon tax being offset by a very substantial reduction. In fact, much a much higher threshold for paying our social security taxes, our national insurance taxes, which are extremely regressive. But I think you pointed out something, Helen, that's really important here in thinking about how these kinds of programs become transformational. The 3,000 economists, in effect, would probably line up first, as all economists would, that the most efficient way to, re- to shift and reduce the production and consumption of carbon would be to tax it. And, of course, for economics, the presiding virtue is efficiency. When we're talking about response to climate change, just as when we're talking about uh, winning the war, what, of course, matters is effectiveness which involves accepting necessary waste as uh, a concomitant of pushing for effectiveness along multiple channels. I'd say the second significant thing is it's very nice to find people actually recognizing that there are distributional consequences of decisions about allocating resources. For a long generation before Thomas Piketty, the notion that economics had anything to do or anything to say about distribution had simply been excluded. And so I think there's a realism, I agree with you, there's a certain realism about ducking the obvious efficient instrument of carbon taxes, which has been built into the professional economist's toolkit for responding to climate change. Is it possible that there's a slight misnomer here in that, so the New Deal, there are two things that people are referring back to, one of which is the original response to the emergency of 1933. That then morphs into the transformational economy of the Second World War. And these are two very distinct things. And there is that view among historians that without the war, the New Deal was kind of going to fizzle out in a way. I don't know if that's right. And it's a question for the Green New Deal, is it actually the transformational thing that we want rather than the the earlier emergency New Deal, that actually what we're looking for, though war is no longer an option, either in reality or rhetorically, it's that warlike transformation we want, not the patched together Rooseveltian New Deal. That's why I said that that we suffer today from the fact that the language of war as legitimizing massive programs of mobilization has been debased. Should we take a moment and go back and just about what the real New Deal, what yeah, the so FDR t- so t- New Deal was about? Does the FDR New Deal in itself offer a model for climate transformation and innovation? Well, what it does offer is a model of substantial effectiveness through utterly incoherent and in many ways self-contradictory initiatives. In the first 100 days, the famous first 100 days of Roosevelt's administration that started on March 4th, 1933, when we had inaugurations in those years, the first thing was an emergency banking act, which closed all the banks in the country, asserted that only sound banks would be allowed to open. That was absolutely fundamental. But simultaneously, one day later, came the Economy Act. Roosevelt had run for president with two absolute commitments for policies and one slogan. The two commitments were repeal prohibition and balance the budget, that as tax revenues had fallen, the appalling deficit that Herbert Hoover had perpetrated and had not been able to address was absolutely top of the agenda. So the Economy Act was passed to cut a $3.6 billion federal expenditures all of 4% of the national economy 
by $500 million. I looked up the numbers this morning. And then a month later, they passed the National Industrial Recovery Act, which on the one hand did include a massive 6% of GDP public works program. And on the other hand, called for a national voluntary movement of industrial cartels, a program that had actually originated in the boardroom of the General Electric Company, whose rationale was raise prices. People are going broke, companies are firing people, companies are going bankrupt because we're in a deflationary spiral and the recovery depends on raising prices. That was also the rationale for going off the gold standard. And all of this was kind of wrapped up, however, in a sense of what Roosevelt had called for in his greatest campaign speech, which was bold, persistent experimentation. So in a way, that's the question. Can can you deliberately plan to be incoherent and chaotic? Well, I put it the other way. Is there any alternative to being incoherent, self-contradictory, if you're trying to generate a mobilization of spirit and resources and will. World War II mobilization in the United States was just as contradictory and incoherent. The U.S. contributed to winning the war on the momentum of mobilization, not through any coherent planned program. But I think there's a really interesting difference, although there's a certain parallel to it, between the relationship between the domestic and the international, if you go back to the New Deal. Because as you just said, the the condition of the New Deal is pulling the United States off the gold standard. Is It's a retreat from the international economy that makes possible what is essentially a way of restructuring the American economy in ways that make American banks and Wall Street significantly less important than had been um, the case. So you retreat from the international into do, to do something domestic. Now, in one sense, there is something about the Green New Deal that is sort of doing that because it's basically trying to confine the climate change problem to the United States. But that's obviously not the way that climate change... That's another kind of incoherence. That's incoherent, because you could do all these things in the United States via the Green New Deal if it could be done, and you would still have a climate change problem unless you have an international strategy at the same time. So this time, you can't decouple the domestic and the international in the way in which you could in 1933. You're absolutely right. But I don't think it's quite fair to say that the authors and advocates of the Green New Deal are thinking in isolationist terms. I think what they're trying to do is get a working consensus that Paris is right, that we need to be part of the international movement for this. But doesn't that make it odd that they've chosen something that is a very American metaphor and actually a partisan one within the United States, as Helen was saying? So a more natural parallel might have been the moonshot, which speaks to the absence of the technology that you were describing earlier and speaks to doing something that's good for humankind as well. You know... Talking about the New Deal in a positive way, it's a very narrow segment of uh, uh, rejectionist right that would find that excessively partisan, I really believe. But there's a difference, though, isn't there, between the way in which people view the past, and yeah. I agree, and the way in which they view the present, right. which is is that this would be an extremely interventionist federal state, and there are plenty of people in the United States that have got a problem with that. There are, there are, but, you know... You can't survive as a venture capitalist if you're not a temperamental optimist, and I am. And I think if you look through the 2018 elections, 
There are a lot of green shoots at the state and local level. For example, the broad, persistent effectiveness of teacher strikes. There's a whole new wave that's starting this week, which have produced increased taxes in right-wing states like Kansas because of the great experiment of liquidating government having produced catastrophic results economically and socially. The mission in the U.S. that is needed is to take what now in the polls looks like 60 to 65 percent of people saying, A, climate change is real, B, we're human beings, play a role, and C, we really ought to be doing something about this, and turning that into a kind of movement. So I think that the PR, the entrepreneurial effort to raise consciousness in the U.S. is actually the single most important missing piece of any kind of coordinated global response to climate change. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's also a question here about how to pay for it. And Simon Wren Lewis wrote a blog a couple of days ago saying that um, this is an obvious example of something where you can load the debt onto future generations because you're doing it for future generations. I mean, there's a deal here, which is if you save them, they're not going to resent it. Now, I'm not sure, actually, because if you do save people, I think they're quite capable of resenting it. But still, his line was, we can, and again, it goes back to some of these historical precedents. How do you actually fund this thing? Do you do it through taxation? Do you do it through debt? That this is a case where fiscal prudence can go out the window. We just have to throw everything at it. And that includes borrowing from the future. It's not even clear to me how much borrowing it would need, because part of the trick here is to stimulate innovation and entrepreneurship. So you get the growth on the supply side, as it were. So some pump priming for sure, but I don't know that it would need to be a very large debt burden on the future. In a way, the, the best thing that the advocates of the Green New Deal have on their side is the existing carbon-intensive infrastructure is literally falling apart. It is going to have to be replaced, and a lot of that funding is going to come at the state and local and public-private basis. But we should bear in mind that those who deeply believe that talk about climate change is purely and simply an exercise in trying to bring socialism to America have preemptively really done something that is very destructive and very constraining. And that is this last tax cut after all the other tax cuts, which have reduced the fiscal capacity of the federal government so substantially, is going to be a political constraint, even if it perhaps should not be a meta-economic constraint. I think the debt question is really interesting if you look back at the historical sort of branding as well about this, because some of the historical branding seems to be not just it's the Green New Deal, but this is our World War II, yeah. and we finance World War II, and we can finance um, this. But if you go back to the conditions in which the United States financed World War II, they're extraordinarily different than the present 
conditions, not least because you know America was the dominant creditor power yeah. in the world. Now it's absolutely not. It's dependent on foreigners buying its debt, and in particular, it has been the the Chinese. So they have been somewhat retreating from that. In fact, significantly retreating from that from late two thousand and fourteen. We already live in a world that has been dominated monetarily for ten years by quantitative easing and extraordinarily low interest rates. Now, obviously, in one sense, that makes borrowing you know like much easier. On the other hand, the last 10 years of QE and zero interest rates have had extraordinarily deleterious consequences in other areas. I mean, pensions being the obvious um, example, but asset bubbles and... And in a way, so it becomes generational again. If if it's like the future generations and and the present ones... There is, I would say, severe dysfunctionality that's become hardwired in our international economic environment by the way that we've dealt with debt for the last 10 years. That doesn't mean there was an alternative to it but it comes at considerable cost. Now, some of that was necessary, including, ironically, some of it was necessary in order to deal with present tense oil problems because you wouldn't have got the shale boom in the United States if it wasn't for this zero interest rate environment when when shale was started. So none of these are objections in themselves, but it is wrong, I think, to think that you can do these things without there being any number of unintended consequences that won't themselves cause problems that then have to be dealt with. Now, you can come to the argument that says, okay, climate change is so overwhelming that that has to take priority. But even within the Green New Deal, there's already a slippage there, because if it's so the overwhelming priority, which I actually think it should be, then why not nuclear power, which is being ruled out? Basically, this argument says from the Green New Deal proponents says, climate change is the most important issue that we face. But there are two conditions in which we will deal with it. The first of them is, is that we won't have nuclear power, so presumably that's more important than yeah. climate change. And secondly, we must carry on using as much energy as we now use, regardless of the fact of whether the laws of physics means that we can carry on using as much energy as we do now and do it from renewable sources. So in some sense, they don't actually believe what they're saying. And what's sort of incoherent about that is that unless you come along quickly with some storage te- electricity storage technologies, you've got to have nuclear as the baseload generation for any carbon-free uh, energy system. Well, two thoughts. Um, one, there actually was an alternative in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, which was called fiscal policy, fiscal stimulus. Every country in the world in the 12 months immediately following the crash ran enormous deficits, and then came the austerity wave. It was true in the United States. The Obama stimulus bill was reduced in scale and then was followed by a determination that that was it. And all of the burden was put on the central banks. As Mohammed El-Aryan put it, they're the only game in town. And that's where this unique 10 years of zero to negative risk-free real interest rates, which I don't believe has ever before been experienced in peacetime at least, came from. And that has had consequences. It's motivated institutional investors pursuing return through investments, reaching for risk, buying illiquidity, funding the unicorns. And why in that unique 10-year period of chasing the unicorns, has it not driven more innovation around climate? I mean, why has it been so focused on certain kinds of innovation? Because the other question here is, Why have we made so little progress in this unique environment where money is cheap and we're facing this enormous challenge? Why does it not go that way? Well, I think that gets you well into understanding where private sector venture capital plays effectively 
and where it plays, not at all. Where it plays effectively and where it has played now, we have you know, 40 years worth of data, has been in information technology and the services derivative from that and in life sciences, biotech. But it is the case that in the output of material science and in everything to do with energy, venture capital's time horizons are simply utterly inappropriate, that this is where state investment is required, where, as I like to put it, in the world of American venture capital in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, we were all dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the federal government over the previous generation, 30 years of upstream investment that made silicon a reliable, cheap semiconducting material and proved out computer architectures and funded the education of software and created the discipline of computer science. We have nothing like the scale of that today. ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Project Agency Energy, has a $300 million budget. A tenth of DARPA is still DARPA's budget for defense research projects. And there is no will, certainly not in this administration, to change that whatsoever. So that's where really major upstream investment is needed. And venture capitalists are very good at capitalizing on that kind of fundamental technology when it's matured to the point that there are obvious commercial applications. But that's why it's interesting that the idea of industrial strategy or industrial policy is coming back. And there is a real shift, I think, in the climate of ideas about this, perhaps less in the US than in other countries. But but this recognition that the state has longer time horizons and has to be there for these fundamental investments and other kinds of of technology. I, I agree with you completely, Diane. I think that there has been um, a history that compromised the notion of industrial strategy because it came to be associated, and perhaps particularly in Britain, with picking national champions. Um, Britain did that in the computer industry. ICL had extraordinary technology, very advanced, right at the frontier, but having been guaranteed unique ownership of the market in the public sector in Britain, Nobody at ICL ever learned how to compete. And when they went outside of the UK public sector, they were a complete failure, and and particularly vis-a-vis IBM. So as Danny Roderick says, picking sectors, not picking winners, is a very sound approach. Or I would say not even picking sectors, but picking challenges and funding the basic research into those issues. But one of the most significant places that capital has gone since 2008 is the shale sector. Yeah. And that shale is absolutely necessary for our present day lifestyles. And this is where the questions about energy and climate change get really complicated. Because if you take, if you take the world in 2007, the world used 86 million barrels of oil a day. Last year it used 99 million barrels of oil a day. So even though we're trying to get away from fossil fuels, actually the world's oil consumption is basically going up by a million barrels a day every year and the only way in which the cost of that oil has been tolerable for the last since about 2010 2011 is because of shale oil propped up by the credit that QE and zero interest rates made possible and the reason why that is the case is is we do not have renewables as an alternative in the transportation sector primarily to some extent heating but primarily in the transportation sector when we're talking about renewables we're talking about the electricity generation so we are a million miles away 
and, and from being able right. to do something about changing our fossil fuel dependency and because of transportation. Am I right that this is also a story of dancing on the platform Absolutely. that the state built? Because that the shale revolution is a product of massive state investment in the 70s and 80s, and driven by war, by fears about well, energy it, and cold, it, cold war vulnerability. Actually, uh, it was very definitely because core to that technology was the, were the experiments in underground nuclear explosions, which generated the data that allowed an entrepreneur in Texas named George Mitchell to do the first hydraulic fracking of shale and producing oil. And it was all based on research that had been funded by the government. But coming to the transition in transportation, Elon Musk talked about public entrepreneurs and charismatic champions of change. Whether or not Tesla ever becomes a positive cash flow sustainable business, about which I very much have my doubts, uh, he has done something that has generated momentum that is now right across the automobile sector. And so the issue is going to be how does the energy get generated and distributed? There's been some recent work that suggests if, as, and when the auto fleet in any developed country gets to, say, 50% electric, it's going to destroy the grid as it's presently managed. You have to have a massive increase in uh, generating capacity. And this is where this kind of multi-layer program with state underwriting is going to be critical because there are so many points at which it can fail and, um, and and state coordination, yeah. uh, setting technical standards, Absolutely. figuring out how's, how the infrastructure is going to be paid for, when uh, when the investment is going to occur, all of those things right. can't be done without the state coordinating. Absolutely right. Well, this is why I think I, I don't really understand how the Green New Deal proponents can take nuclear off the table before we're having any discussion about this. Because if you're talking about getting to 100% of present electricity use by renewables plus then replacing the yeah. entirety of the transportation sector yeah. by renewables, yeah. which basically means electricity generation in the transportation sector, plus then dealing with um, heating. The amount of electricity is just mind-boggling. Yeah. And then to say before you've even started that there is something that in, that is presented as being worse than climate change seems to me to be an, astonishingly, an extraordinarily difficult position to take. And, and worse, I think it leads to the possible conclusion from those who are sceptical about climate change is that people can't actually mean what they say. And, that and therefore really, it is a political project yeah. and not a... And that, that is really dangerous. Well, and, and of course, unfortunately, the model for this incoherence is Germany. And Merkel's knee-jerk reaction... went up after they took their nuclear off the grid. Yeah. And they're still mining lignite, which is the most carbon-generating fuel possible. And yeah, they now have a sort of soft commitment that they'll stop mining lignite 2035, I think, is the date. The so they buy even year. more electricity from the French nuclear fleet in that case. Right. It's completely hypocritical. Right. So, uh, you know, it's policy incoherence. It's worse than being hypocritical, I think. I used to think that the problem was hypocrisy, but it actually makes it look like people are lying because it makes it look like they don't actually believe what they say because they don't actually make getting to um, dealing with climate change the most important priority. But the rejection of nuclear, it goes, it, it's so deeply rooted in everything from, you know, renewed by Fukushima, but back to Three Mile Island, and then, of course, Chernobyl. I mean, it is, if you like, folklore, but it's enormously powerful, and there are specific reference points. Um, but it's enormously powerful on the American left, because this could be a bipartisan question, but so many of these things are not anymore. Isn't that right? That this is, well, actually, I mean, it's, it's a, 
as a policy question, it's bipartisan, but somehow as a marker of identity, hasn't it become more of a, I mean, it's, it, you absolutely would associate it with a kind of AOC-led coming from that tradition of American politics. Yeah. And that's always the challenge here, to, to, to get beyond markers of identity in American politics. I would say not only in America. <laughs> Can I ask a related but slightly different question? Maybe I'll put this to Diane first. So, Bill, in your book, you also talk about these very long time horizons where the productivity rewards of these technological changes come through, but it can take decades before the basic infrastructure becomes sufficiently available to enough people and enough enterprises that you actually see a sudden surge in general economic productivity. Is it possible that we're on the cusp of that with the digital revolution? So that actually, we've been in this slightly stagnant period, we've had venture capital playing with unicorns, but the idea that cloud technology and these platforms that used to belong to a relatively narrow group of players in this game are going to be massively available to all of us. And a lot of people are going to become even richer because they own the platforms and the cloud. But that we're going to see a big surge in productivity and innovation on a different scale than the last 15 years? Entirely possible. And of course, it's always... Uh, the world is overdetermined, so it's always tricky identifying exactly what pathways you get the productivity increases through. But it's pretty clear from all the economic evidence that it's not just that you do what you're already doing using a new technology, but you use the new technology to change what you're doing. And it's when that happens, which requires the infrastructure investments, but also the corporate reorganisation and the kind of activities that people do in their work, the way their jobs are organised into different kinds of tasks, all of that can take a very long time because it's not technical change, it's social change, and it requires people to coordinate and really change their behaviour. So it's entirely possible. If you're going to ask me when and how much and where exactly, I can't tell you that. But do you see signs of it now? I mean, do you see evidence that this kind of radical shift in the organisation of of work and, and how businesses actually operate is starting to happen? You see the early stage of it. So to take your cloud computing example, there are now lots of companies at the stage of using cloud computing to do what they already did. They're not yet at the stage of changing what they do using that facility. But increasingly, that's going to become easier and cheaper. So the cloud companies are offering AI capabilities to all companies who then therefore don't need to have their own their skills, AI capabilities. Yeah. Their skills in-house. And that could be transformational. And, and, and there, again, there's history here. Um, you know, the, the railroads date back to the 1820s and 30s, uh, first in Britain, then in the United States. It's 50 years until what Brad DeLong called the killer app of the railroad age, namely retail mail order, uh, Montgomery Ward and Sears Roebuck, transformed the geography of the American economy by making high-quality goods at central city prices available to a population that was still more than 50% on the farm. So if we say that, you know, maybe the digital age comes in somewhere between the invention of the microprocessor in the mid-60s and the launch of the first personal computers just before 1980, and roll forward 50 years, this is when you would be expecting to see the transformational application of this general-purpose technology. Paul David, American historian of technology, wrote an article back in 1990 called The Dynamo and the Computer. And he was responding to Bob Solow's wisecrack uh, the great economist at MIT. We can see computers everywhere but in the productivity statistics. 
And uh, Paul David went back to look at the history of electrification and said, in 1900, you could look around and say, we, we can see dynamos everywhere but in the productivity statistics. But and, it, and what the electricity yeah. example shows you is that some countries, or some economies might never get there because yeah. there are still countries in the world that can't deliver electricity to their citizens and it's yeah. a 19th century technology. So, so that in a way was going to be my last question because Helen touched on it and we slightly skirted around this but all of these challenges are now fundamentally international. Yeah. The politics is still not. The politics is still primarily domestic but more and more of the infrastructure is international. So this cloud facility is not going to be available to everyone. And there are constraints, but it is going to be pretty broadly available. Is it likely to spread everywhere or close to everywhere? I mean, are we going to see the benefits of this? Or is it in the end, is the politics going to constrain it? Oh, I think there there are two different strands going on. One is that there are technological innovations that are now reduced to practice and available that are allowing a certain degree of leapfrogging from countries that will never build electricity grids. And that's not just sub-Saharan Africa, it's also parts of Asia. But where mobile wireless technology and internet access through wireless technology is creating the opportunities for new qualitatively different kinds of services that are having real economic impact. For example, fishermen off the west coast of Africa, if they have a reasonably smartphone, while they're at sea, can check which of the three alternative ports within range is actually offering a better price for what they've caught today. And farmers in East Africa are getting daily to weekly, and even in some cases, hourly updates on weather forecasts at the time of planting, at the time of harvesting, with the potential for very substantial increases in productivity and in returns for those who are consumers of these services that you wouldn't have thought would be available in what is many places is a kind of pre-industrial economy. Again, you know, I confess, temperamental optimist, and I do think the cloud, cloud computing is going to be global except for one thing, which is the internet breaking into a Chinese version and a rest of the world version. As you say, you can't now, technological innovation has been heavily politicized. It's been so for some time, but the confrontation in the US-China relationship, you can see with it, with 5G in particular, is inescapable. There isn't any way of doing technological innovation any longer on a global scale that is going to escape geopolitics. And it takes a lot of energy too to run a data center. Oh, it does indeed. So we come back to the need for a global Green New Deal. We do. Yeah. Or what Carlotta Perez called the the global green revolution. Bill Janeway's book is called Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy. We'll tweet the link to that and also to Diane Coyle's blog, The Enlightened Economist, where she talks about a lot of these issues and some of the other things that we've been discussing, including surveillance capitalism. Next week, we're going to do two episodes. One totally non-Brexity, about political novels with the novelist Richard Kelly. And we're going to talk about what's going on in British politics, not just the Brexit votes that are coming up, but also what's happening with the Labour Party. And Helen is still with me. We're going to have a little preliminary chat about what's happening to the Labour Party. While we were recording that discussion of the Green New Deal, we discovered that three Conservative MPs have joined the new independent group. 
we wanted to frame this as a comparison with the SDP breakaway in the early 1980s. And now we have an obvious difference, right? Which is, I think, maybe one Tory... Christopher uh, Brockle Fowler, I think his name okay. was. <laughs> he flipped. Um, I assume it was a he. Yeah. We now have three Conservative women MPs who have joined this group, which does make this difference. So there are other differences too. The, the calibre, the profile of the leaders of the SDP is different in this case. But this possibly is, in lots of ways something that doesn't have a historical precedent, at least not in recent British political history. Do you think we've now reached the point where the comparison with the 1980s breaks down? Yes, in a way, for the reason that you've just said. I would say the no answer comes from thinking that this now looks, as opposed to what it looked like at the beginning of the week, something that is an anti-Brexit formation, because you've got three people from the Conservative Party who've been clearly extremely unhappy about Britain leaving the European Union and Anne Soubry's case has been very involved in the People's Vote campaign. And and if you did the Venn diagram of their, from what we've seen of their resignation letters and the the Labour resignation letters, both groups are saying that they are disgusted with the intolerance and the this and the that, but on substantive issues, the only point of overlap is Brexit. It is. And I think that clearly that there is a a sense amongst the Conservatives from what little time I had to see what they were saying of being extremely critical about the ERG as almost like a party within a party. And in that sense, I think there perhaps is some echo back of the the SDP descriptions of Labour back in the the early 1980s. But that wasn't really the position of a party within a party that was coming from the, the formerly Labour MPs who are now in the independent group formation which is much more specific critique of the leadership and the leadership. So they they didn't at all say we're doing this because of momentum, for instance? No, they didn't, not at all. And obviously the issue of anti-Semitism played quite a significant role in the defection of the the Labour MPs. It's not playing any role in the defection of the Conservative MPs. And I think that what is different than things were 24 hours ago is that this now looks like it has some policy substance to it around Brexit, whereas when it was simply Labour MPs, although that they all had in common that they were opposed to Brexit, the focus of what they were saying was about Corbyn. Does it make it harder now to see many more people joining? Because on the Conservative side, if you had to guess who were the three, you probably could have guessed it would have been these three. On the Labour side, there was a feeling and even in Tom Watson's pretty extraordinary video statement that he released, this sense that there was actually a, quite a large body of opinion that were at least tempted by making a stand on some of these issues and that there could be a whole series of gradual defections. Is that less likely now? I mean, I can't see many Tory defections, but is it now less likely that there will be this sort of steady drip drip of people on the Labour side? Now it's become this slightly differently defined group? My initial instinct, without obviously either of us having had much chance to think about it, is is that yes, that it makes it, it more difficult. Because in one sense you could say, I think, that it could have been a, a holding operation in the hope that one day the Labour Party might come back to the kinds of people who are deeply opposed to... So if they all defected Corbyn's over time, then the independents would be the Labour leadership. Party. But that possibility doesn't really work when you've got Conservatives who are now joining it. This looks like more like a proto-new party, even though it's not got to that position um, yet. And given that the 
the one thing that most unites the Labour Party has always historically been a tribal anti-Toryism. Once you include Conservatives in this new formation, that is different. Now, I think in one sense you could draw a parallel back to the you know like 1930s, where you have a you know the group of Labour MPs around Ramsay MacDonald that were a minority that then you know formed a coalition government with majority Conservatives. But we're not in that position either because. These are not the majority. Yeah. Um, if then, this is a smaller minority but this on the is a, but, side. But if you think back to the way in which that is now perceived within the Labour Party, that is an act of complete treachery, what Macdonald did. So in some sense, there's, it's harder to find a way back for these independent Labour, former Labour people, back into the Labour Party. It makes it harder for more people to defect. Having said that, it's pretty clear that the way in which a number of people, including MPs, including Tom Watson, as you said, reacted initially to what had happened would be to say look essentially this can't be the end of the matter that we have to bring this issue of Corbyn's leadership as far as many MPs are concerned obviously not as far as the members as most of the members are concerned to a head. It's often said that the big problem with setting up a new party is the first past the post system it's incredibly difficult to break the stranglehold of the two big parties but also as you say there is that tribal element, increasing, I think, polarised tribal element to politics. So I had felt in a way that the party that split first, rather than then peeling off members of the other side, might reinforce the other side's view that if we can hang together while they're falling apart, we can win the next time round. And there's a bit of that you can see in the last week going on on the Conservative side, a sense that it's good that the, the break was initiated on the Labour side. And if these are the only three on the Conservative side, there probably is quite a strong reason, isn't there, for other Conservatives to feel this is the moment to hold together? I think so, yes. And I think that... Just for electoral reasons. And I think that, you know, if you're in the the point of view of the the ERG in the Conservative Party, is is that peeling off some very irreconcilable Remainers is, is probably a good thing because it increases the chance that someone from your faction is going to be the, lead, the next leader of the party and I think the other difference is if, if this is now going to become an anti-Brexit proto-party the numbers of people in the Conservative Party the Parliamentary Party I mean by that who are irreconcilably opposed to Brexit is significantly smaller than the numbers of people in the Labour Party who well, are it's a minority in one case and it's a majority in the other case I'm not sure whether it's completely a majority in the other case but it's between let's say 80 and 100 in the Labour Party case it's it's not that high in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Presumably what it doesn't do is change the parliamentary arithmetic around the votes that we've got coming up next week that we will be discussing in much more detail next week and we'll try and pull some of these themes together. We literally are responding to this as close as possible in our terms in real time. But these groupings don't change how people were voting and how they're going to vote. No, because it looks like everybody who has in this independent grouping was somebody who was in favour of a second referendum. So in that sense, they're still going to be in the position in which that they were. I mean, I do think that Chakramuna in particular has got to this position because he concluded after the failure of the Cooper Amendment that the second referendum was no yeah, longer but You possible. said, again, in, as close as we get to in real time, that you had been struck by, by his enormous anger. anger. And I think there is a line between that moment and where he has ended up at the beginning of the the week. But it doesn't change the fact that even if someone like him is, seems to have given up on the idea that the second referendum can win, it doesn't change the fact that that's his position, and that is a position now of every single person in the independent grouping, so it doesn't actually change the parliamentary arithmetic. 
So there's a question which we won't, I imagine, get resolved soon, but the relationship of this group to the Liberal Democrats, because we do have a pro-Remain party in British politics, which, though it doesn't poll well, does well in local elections, has had a groundswell of members joining. I mean, the Liberal Democrats are not finished by any means, and possibly with new leadership, there is a reconfiguration to happen there. But if you just look at it from Corbyn and May's point of view, you know, there is a temptation on both sides to think, well, good riddance, frankly. I mean, these these people weren't making our lives any easier, and having them on the outside slightly streamlines what we can do in trying to hold discipline inside the party. Do you think, in either case, that would be a reasonable thing to think, that it's made either of their lives a tiny bit easier? I think it perhaps makes Theresa May's life a bit easier. I think it's harder for Corbyn because it looks like it's brought a groundswell of discontent in the parliamentary party back to the surface again. That was clearly there, you know, obviously there in 2016 when the parliamentary party largely resigned en masse to try to force him out. I think it came back over the summer and it got suppressed again and now it looks like it's back. I think the Liberal Democrats are an interesting question in this is because I think from the point of view of the independent group, they somehow need to subsume the Liberal Democrats into them rather than any possibility that they get subsumed into the Liberal Democrats. And what the Liberal Democrats have is a machine. I mean, they have an organisation, which this group doesn't. They have a machine and an organisation, but they also have a heavily damaged brand. So like, take the machine and dump the brand. <laughs> I think that, that, is certainly, that is certainly a possibility. But the more it looks like it's, it's got anything to do with the Liberal Democrats, the harder it's going to be to peel off more Labour MPs and some Labour voters, because the memory, the tribal memory of the coalition years and the Liberal Democrats' role in that is still very much alive in the Labour movement. And if anything happened while we were recording that, you'll just have to wait till next week to find out what we think. So more, much more on that next week. It'll be an extra episode. If you subscribe, look out for it. It will appear as soon as we can make it available. We always try and respond to things as they happen, and there is a lot going on at the moment, but we can't get to everything, and we do on this podcast sometimes need the time too. So next week, two different kinds of conversations, one about novels, one about Brexit. We really hope you enjoy them both. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.